Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. This week, I have guest John Sweeney, a BBC reporter who has had more than a little bit of um, a run-in, I guess you could say, experience with Scientology, the Church of Scientology. Um, he famously did a, an episode of uh, BBC Panorama with uh, the Church of Scientology that had all kinds of uh, fun and games going on in it. We'll talk a little bit about that. He is also the author of this book, Church of Fear, which was all about that experience. And um, it's, it's actually, this is really good. And it gives a lot of inside information on what happened and how everything went down. And like I said, we're going to talk a little bit about that during the podcast here. But I also have questions for John of, about other places he's been because he's been to some very interesting places in this world that have parallels to Scientology. So, John, welcome to my podcast. Hiya. <laughs> hey. Hi, so, first off, why don't we just, for everybody who is not familiar with the backstory, let's just very briefly go over what, how did you first hear about the Church of Scientology and get involved in that with Panorama, and then basically what happened? A long time, I mean, all of us, uh, I went to the LSE and in the 70s, um, late 70s, 77, 1980, and I was aware of the Church of Scientology back then when I was a student. They have a recruitment center on Tottenham Court Road. And a foolish friend of mine called Nick dragged me in one day. I was wary uh, and he dragged me in and we sat down and did the Oxford analytical test or whatever it is. And very quickly, I realized that all the questions were um, framed in an obvious and um, 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 unpleasant way to, to, so that you would end up um, feeling um, that you, there was something wrong with you, you had big problems, and that Scientology would be the solution for those problems. And very quickly, I started going through the, the entire test, uh, drawing a diagonal. So that I uh, a continual bouncing diagonal, uh, and at the end of it, I filled in the name not not my own name, but of somebody I didn't like at the LSE who I think um, stolen uh, a girlfriend. So I kind of got it straight away. Um, that was, and I was um, whatever eighteen, nineteen, something like this. Then, um, um, then I. Uh, I've become a newspaper reporter. I'm aware of Scientology. Um, I don't think I do any stories uh, as a newspaper reporter. And we end up doing a film, uh, BBC documentary, about the um, uh, Kabbalah Center. And we interview this very funny, uh, astute guy called Rick Ross, who um, he's, he says the Kabbalah Center is Jewish Scientology. And um, we come away from the end of, the, of that film, um, and clearly... Kabbalah Center and people like Madonna were, um, well, Kabbalah Center is a cult, people say, who've left it. And um, Madonna has allowed her celebrity power to be misused as, as being an ambassador for this uh, flagrant nonsense. But it felt to us like having done uh, a small dinosaur, that we should go and take on the T-Rex. 
um, and that's exactly um, uh, what we did. We um, we went to um, um, we had a look at it and had a very clever set producer Sarah Mole, who's from Essex, and she studied them and saw the various films and other bits of journalism that other people had done. We're talking, this is 2006. And I identified what they do, which is that they come at you very, very hard. And they come at your management as well. If you're a journalist, they come at your publishers, da 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 and therefore spook you so much that you pull out or pull backwards or become much more timid. She also identified um, that they would, they would come they would change the game. They would not play the rules of the game. Rather than you write them letters and they write you letters, you knock on their door, etc. They would come and target target you. And Sarah's got an Essex accent, uh, says, Hey, John, you've seen Jurassic Park, ain't ya? And I said, I have, Sarah, yes. And said, you've seen that bit where there's a tethered goat and the T-Rex comes for it, yeah? And I said, yes. And she said, well, then, you're the tethered goat. You could believe <laughs> And I went, and that was the plan. And what was so funny was it worked perfectly. She was absolutely right. Every time um, we did anything, the T-Rex would come for me. And we made sure we had a big camera, um, Bill Brown, a big tough cameraman, a big camera. But we always had a little um, kind of high eight camera. And, getting the type technology but a small one to perform um, good mobile phones so we, we were um, we were able to shoot um, whenever we were attacked and we were attacked all the time and the thing is I blew it because the tethered goat turned into a tethered rhino That's right your famous blow up with Tommy Davis yeah eventually uh, Tommy Davis got under my skin too much. I said that morning, I said to uh, Sarah, I can't do this anymore. And she said, um, hey, um, you know, get on with your job. And um, I, <laughs> I lost my temper. I apologized then and I apologize now. And you should play a clip of it on your podcast. I will, I will, because people need to see it. Who well, it's, but you should, uh, people who've got hard of hearing, they'll be okay. But people with normal hearing, they should turn the sound down. I'm not an expert on brainwashing. And when asked in that case why he kept making the accusation, Sweeney's reaction was unexpected to say the least. Who told you to No, listen to me! You are not there! At the beginning of that interview! You were not there! You did not hear or record all the interview! Brainwashing is a crime Did you understand? You are quoting the second half of the interview, not the first half. You cannot discern what you're saying. Right, right. Well, certainly not your proudest moment, but um, very, very enlightening. And I wanted to actually ask you, you know, uh, I guess it was a year or two after all of that went down, Tommy Davis, of course, was pushing your buttons, and he was very much doing it on purpose. But Mike Rinder was also there. He was still a Sea Org member at the time. And he, after he came out of the church, you and he got together, and he was able to tell you exactly what happened. Now, how much of what he told you, as far as with the hijinks they were up to, how much of that was revelatory to you? It was, um, there were two things that Mike said, which were shocking. By the way, we, we worked out quite quickly that he'd vanished. 
because normally the two of them turned up and then um, Tommy vanished. Um, the gossip was that he'd gone off to uh, Las Vegas because he knew he'd screwed up in some way, offended Miscavige, and, and he ran away. And then Mike, on his own, um, came and um, uh, kind of monstered me in, um, actually, at Tottenham Court Road. Or we, He was there, and uh, we met, and he had yet another go at me. And, and by this time, I'd heard... Um, this is all in 2007. I'd heard that Miss Cabbage had beaten him um, several times. I put that to him and he denied it with a real intensity. And so three years later, Sarah tracked him down. We found out that he'd left and we tracked him down to a uh, car dealership in Virginia. And Sarah asked him um, and he umdenard and eventually he came across to London and I met him. And I said, you know, you denied that you've been beaten by Miss Cabbage. Are you lying then? Or were you lying then? Or are you lying now? You know, which is it? I said, no, I was lying then. He beat me maybe 50 times. So this was for us a um, shocking, um, shocking piece of evidence. It wasn't the only one by any means showing that Miss Cabbage had a real problem with violence and was a violent bully who was the leader of what well, ex-members say is a cult. Obviously, um, the Church of Scientology say that I'm a liar, a bigot, and a psychotic. Thank you very much. But um, uh, what was frustrating was the British libel law at the time prevented us from broadcasting the full majesty of what Mike was saying. But the other thing that got to me um, and unsettled me was that Mike was quite... Um, um, he was they had set out to destroy me. They had set out to make me lose my temper, to lose my cool, so I'd lose my job. And I kind of knew this at one level, but nevertheless to have it from one of my persecutors um, was fascinating. The other strange thing is that Mike and I have become good friends um, since this. And um, when he uh, uh, got married again, I was invited to his wedding. And it was like inviting Satan uh, to your wedding, it was, you know, if you're in the church or something. So that was very, very funny. So then was there any other off-camera consequences or ramifications to what happened from your story, from Panorama on them? Yeah, well, there was a lot of heat uh, from us. Um, and the BBC um, thought about uh, sacking uh, Sarah and I. They thought about it. BBC management doesn't like um, a BBC reporter to go and screaming. Uh, but by the way, I don't like it. I'm sorry, I apologise then. And I apologise now. Uh, my son said, I'll tell the story. He's um, a fitness freak. And he was on a running gym, um, a double running gym. Um, uh, with his A treadmill. A treadmill. treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> a treadmill. Off camera. And uh, his mate... Uh, with a watching the news and his mate said, look at that nutter and, and Sam my son said that's my dad <laughs> hey um, I apologize then I apologize now um my daughter too sort of had um oh dad you're so embarrassing all of that stuff but nevertheless um it was um it was an honest moment of emotional um you know uh, terror um, and I'd had enough, and I just couldn't um, um, 
deal with them anymore in a civilized way. And to be fair to me, I dealt, dealt with them as best I could for six days. And I think if you watch the films called Scientology uh, and Me, it's on YouTube, and you can watch the 30 seconds or 40 second clip of me losing my temper. But also, if you watch the whole film, you see that they put private eyes on us. Tommy came to a hotel at midnight. There's creepy people following us around. When I'm talking to a critic um, of Scientology, um, Tommy comes along and kind of reads out his um, 10 year old um, conviction for some sad sexual indignity, but of no real importance to anybody anywhere. It was an invasion of the poor man's privacy. And, um, and then there was a car chase in LA, and then we were those creepy guys um, spying on us. So there was a real, you, you saw what happened to us, um, and the, uh, the Great British Public liked it. So basically the BBC said, it's all right, don't do it again. And I, and I never have. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Now, you have uh, clearly gone on as a BBC journalist to other places, and, and I wanted to really get into this because I am so overwhelmingly curious about some of the places that you have actually physically been. Starting with North Korea, I, I have to ask you about this because I have actually never interacted with anybody who has been there. And now that, you know, you got stalked and harassed and, and all of that by Scientology, and then you've been to a country that I have made and Mike has made comparisons to Scientology. We have said if Scientology became a country. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. I, to be fair, I, I preferred going to North Korea than, uh, than doing Scientology. North Korea, like, if in the context of being, a, I pretended to be um, a history professor with an alcohol problem, but I was an honored guest. Um, and and we were all treated as honoured guests, and um, and so North Korea from within, and, and also we weren't being in in the slightest bit hostile to North Korea while we were there. So it's a slightly different thing. Nevertheless, um, um, so don't get me wrong. North Korea is the darkest state on earth. It's an evil dictatorship, which has practiced brainwashing effectively and terrifyingly on its population since 1945. Um, yeah. There are no true freedoms. There is no understanding of what it's like. As a joke, I sometimes say that Scientology is like North Korea, but without the nuclear weapons, or that New North Korea is like Scientology, but with Tom Cruise. And it's kind of a joke because Scientology is a, um, an increasingly small force um, in the world. It's a dark force and if you get into it and it can gobble up your mind and your friends and family and that's scary. And it does so inside the world's greatest democracy, the United States principally and other places too, Britain, every, uh, lots of other countries. But basically um, it's something that it doesn't affect the whole of society. Inside North Korea, the state, it's a political religion. But there are things, there are real commonalities. Scientology is a cult. People who are in it are told that it's the best possible thing, it's the great solution to all the world's problems. And the same with North Korea. North Korea is a cult on a national basis. So it, it's, it's very strange thinking about the two things together. Um, but they, but they're, um, North Korea obviously is far darker, has got nuclear <laughs> weapons, etc., etc. 
nevertheless, there are commonalities which both trouble and fascinate me. Yeah, let's talk about those for a minute. What was it, first off, going into North Korea, I mean, coming from a, a democracy, coming from a, a, a land of, of relative personal freedoms like the UK or the United States, how, how, I mean, is there a tone difference almost immediately from getting off the plane? What's it like there? Well, uh, you, you're scared. Um, remember, you are in a tourist bubble. And um, you go on a coach, there is no better tool of totalitarian power than a coach. Because, um, you know, you can look out the windows, but you can't actually do anything. And you, you stop where you're told to stop, etc., etc. So, um, so we were um, in this strange kind of goldfish bowl uh, coach. We stayed in, a, in a, a, a ludicrously upmarket hotel for North Korean standards. For me, it was dreadful. There was um, constant blackouts. There was a puddle um, 20 feet long in the men's toilet in the hotel, and there was no heating. I mean, it was, and I wore uh, a vest, two shirts, a jumper, a jacket, and a big overcoat the whole time I was there. It was March um, 2013. This, too, there's a film... Uh, up on YouTube, it's called North Korea Undercover, uh, Panorama, you can see it. And I've written a book about it as well called North Korea Undercover. Um, and what you've got is a, um, so you're on, you're given a guided tour and the first thing they do is they take you to the, um, the mausoleum where you see the two leaders, um, the God the One, God the First, Kim Il-sung, and his wretched son who presided over the famine in which maybe four million people died um kim jong-un um he's the star of the uh, um he's the puppet in team america who sings i'm so worried i'm so yes. worried and sadly afraid and so here's the thing chris at the beginning we were really spooked out and we all bowed to the gods as we as the week wore on and this is 2013 and things have changed since then but as the week wore on, we became more and more upset and angry with the, the controlling nature of our guides and how the silly it all was. And at the end of it, I wandered around Pyongyang on my own singing, I'm so lonely, I'm so lonely and sadly afraid. And I think I'm the only person who sung that song in North Korea. If there's anybody else, I'll happily buy them a pint. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's actually pretty ballsy as I understand it. Cuz they I now correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they I don't think they screw around over there. I mean, if you step out of line, they'll keep you there. No, so what happened was um we we kind of case a joint um um very carefully as we would we do our homework. And what we worked out was that there was a um, there would have been hundreds, a couple of hundred journalists who'd gone to North Korea in these guided trips, pretending to be journalists, from about, um, I think when the place opened up a, a fair bit, um, from the late 80s through the 90s and the uh, 2000s. So that this was a guided tour, and the, there was one, uh, for example, there was a journalist pretending not to be a journalist who was filming too much and was putting his cards into his computer every night 
And clearly, if there was a bug in the hotel, if there was a, um, a spy camera in the hotel room, they'd see that he was doing something untoward. This guy got busted and um, his camera got smashed. And then the North Koreans apologized to him and uh, paid for, for him to buy a new camera. So this is 2013. Now, what happened to Otto Barnbier was 2017. So this was four years onwards, I think, um, so, or 2016, but it was considerably uh, in the future. We wouldn't have gone in the way we did had what happened to Otto Barnbier happened before. Um, but actually, it felt the risks were low. The risk is high if you're a Korean-American uh, and if you're an evangelical Christian. So that if you go into North Korea with an American passport, but you look like a Korean and you speak Korean, then um, the North Koreans will arrest you and screw you around and all of that. So that's a real, um, that's where they get very, very tough. They hate evangelical Christians. By the way, this is funny, but I'll say it, Chris. Um, um, I will know that North Korea is truly free um, when there is a Church of Scientology org on Revolution Street in in Pyongyang, and I will not go in, and I will uh, sort of happily uh, tell people don't go there. But the point is, in an open and free society, uh, you should put up with things you don't agree with. You should also respect freedom of religion. North Korea is a political religion, and the religion is you adore the Kim family, Kim, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-un, now Kim Jong-il, um, Kim, Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and now Kim Jong-un. Um, and there's something sick about making um, political power religion, that's where Hitler and Stalin um, ended up. Uh, so this is a dark and sick place. But actually, as a tourist, who they think, and they think I was a tourist, and it didn't work out who I was, it's okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Did you, in the tourist bubble while you were there, and this la- I think we'll just we'll move on after this, but I'm just kind of curious. Were there were there um, were there gaps in the curtain? Were there things you could see, even though they had built this artificial thing? Well, there's a moment that there is a, um, a massively. So there's an enormous motorway. Um, what do you people call it again? What do you call a motorway? Oh, a freeway? Yeah, freeway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, uh, by the way, your your language is a disgrace. Um, <laughs> <laughs> England and the United States, uh, two nations divided by a common language, right? <laughs> the United Kingdom, but uh, if, it, if, if it is anyway, this is like a ten-lane motorway, freeway, whatever you call it in, in your dreadful language, and um, it's so bumpy. Uh, the, the, the surface is not smooth and if you drive at speed in a, in a minibus along you get physically seasick so the, you know the lesson for, from the, the moment you arrive you're in the van and um, it's as if you're surfing on a, um, uh, on a rough sea it's really unpleasant because although the road looks magnificent when you're down into the detail of it you're gonna get seasick because it's so, so bumpy when you get to the hotel there's no power in the hotel. It's freezing cold. You don't take your coat off. You go to the toilet. It's really dark. Uh, and um, there's an enormous puddle. 
where the urinals are. You know, you 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 sloshing through a puddle of piss. Um, you go to the, your hotel room and the door doesn't fit the frame. And on the other side, out the window, they're building a hotel and there is, uh, they're building an office block or something like this and they're building it with bamboo 10, 20 stories up. There is no health and safety. Um, uh, they work through the night. They, uh, you can see it there. The workers are like slaves. Um, you know, that is so interesting that even in the constructed Disney World kind of bubble they create for people, they can't get it right. They don't have the resources. They, they don't have the resources, and it felt. For, and after a while, um, we went looking. Um, once we've got our courage back, we went looking for um, um, the moment when the. Um, the cat jumps in the matrix and you can see the glitch in the mainframe. There's a moment, we go to a, um, a waterfall uh, and um, we can't go. There's some, uh, you can hear the waterfall, um, but we um, were blocked and there's, they're doing something. What, and and I, I actually say to one of the guys, they're just switching the waterfall on, aren't you? <laughs> but the idea that you're locked in some kind of weird performance um, was, um, was real, was real, was real. And, uh, and it, it did feel, you know, I was forever looking um, uh, for a curtain and then the little dog pulling away the curtain and you'd see the Wizard of Oz uh, going, Whoa! <laughs> right. And, and that is part of the thing, um, going back to Scientology for a second, when we made our film in 2007, Scientology was still, it was, uh, um, this is before Tom Cruise had split with Cody Holmes, a very significant moment, but it still had the power to really frighten people in Britain and in the States in terms of, don't mess with them because they'll come for you. Now, um, I, I, there's today in 2018, I don't think that's true anymore because so much stuff um, um, has been, um, so much truth has been told about Scientology and you can feel the power of the brainwashing, the power of the fear that it had over people has, has eroded, has crumbled away. And, and I apply that lesson to North Korea, and I'm um, fascinated. I was a very strong um, enthusiast for the BBC to launch a career service, in particular broadcasting into North Korea in as best the way they can. And, uh, and they've started that now, um, which is a good thing. So, I'm, um, so uh, uh, when you have real fear, it's wonderful to try and... Um, unpick that to try and question it to make people laugh at the adversary uh, and also to be less afraid of it and you and I and Le Rimini massively um, better and Mike Rinder and many many others have slowly chipped away at Scientology's kind of plinth upon which the fear rests and, 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 I, and I apply that lesson uh, to things like the, how, how do we handle North Korea, how do we handle Islamic State, so-called, because um, these people are, are brainwashed not just to fleece themselves and to fleece, but Scientology 
um, uh, is that exists to fleece people and to fleece its own adherents of their money and their love and so forth. Um, Islamic State, um, you are brainwashed to kill. Um, and that's a darker thing. But if Scientology, if fighting Scientology uh, has meant that we can understand how to um, unlock the fear in some way, and how to break the fear and hold it has over people, then we should apply some of those lessons to um, uh, to Islamic State, so-called, to the North Korean military, etc., etc. And that's why, although um, my friends mock me for being uh, overly obsessed with Scientology, that's why it still interests me, because it's a it's a small cult um, in the great scheme of things, or rather, it's a uh, it's a very powerful and very rich cult, but nevertheless, it's been hurt badly this last decade. Um, and and how that process has, has panned out, how that works, is interesting because it'll help us address these other cult-like things like Islamic State and North Korea. I could not agree with you more, and that's the exact direction I was, I'm going in as well. Because we have, um, I have spoken with academics who have modeled this behavior, and it is you know, it goes from narcissistic relationship to abusive, destructive cult to terrorist cell. And those, and I'm not talking about an evolution, I'm saying that the model is of behavior and control is very similar between these things. And I think that your real world experience has shown you that exact same thing, that, that these things are similar, they are alike. And that by dealing with one, we can learn how to deal with others. There's a, um, a professor who's... Um wrote the book about thought control um, um, which I read in completely morbid fascination uh, um, so Rick Ross has got um, uh, when we met him uh, doing the Cabela Center um, film he said a cult's got to have three things to be a cult it's got some kind of um, belief system some kind of thought control and brainwashing and it has some kind of messiah figure Scientology, Zenu and all that stuff um, brainwashing you're brainwashed so that you're you, you, when the church says disconnect from your mum you don't see your mum and the thirdly has it got some kind of Tim Pot messiah that's David Miscavige that's Tiny Fists um, and then the, um, the professor who wrote the book, Thought Control um, or Brainwashing, um, Robert's his first name, I've forgotten his Oh, name. Robert Lifton. Yeah, Robert Lifton. Yes. I, I, for a while, I, I read his book and I, I had it under my pillow uh, 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 for a while. But he set out a number of rules for brainwashing, um, one of which is um, um, restriction of information. Yes. And another of which is the deification of, 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 of the entity, of the cult, and the demonization of the other. And uh, recitation of gibberish is, a, is another factor, another identifier. And then um, the denial of self and the promotion of the entity. Um, all of this is Scientology, all of this is North Korea, all of this is Islamic State, so-called. 
so so I was um, um, uh, so now obviously the difference I am not saying that um, spending too much money on Scientology and uh, being horrible to your, your family which is what can happen to you if you get locked into Scientology is the same kind of thing as beheading people or right. being locked inside North Korea but there are real similarities and they're fascinating. Exactly I agree completely. Let's talk about Middle East for a little bit because you've been there physically as well. Where have you gone there and what kind of things have you seen that lend themselves to what you're talking about here? Oh, um, I've been to I've been to Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, um, Egypt, Israel, the occupied territories, um, Palestine, whatever you call it. Um, the um, so I, I, Libya. Um, wow, so you've I, really been to a, a full well, tour. Yeah, I've been. Um, I've been. Um, the craziest place is, of course, the, the Celebrity Center in L.A. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you go to uh, Sada City in East Baghdad, uh, which is the, the heavy, uh, heavy-duty uh, Shia hangout, and that, it's a scary, it's potentially a scary place. Um, I've been undercover in Egypt. We got arrested, da, 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 all that stuff. Nothing competes with the Celebrity Center in L.A. That is hilarious. Well, what sort of things do you see? Because I, you know, I'm really, I'm actually extremely curious about the Middle East. And I know that there is a potpourri of cultures and, and tribalism and, and all kinds of backstory to well, every one of these countries. Potpourri in English, English is um, the potpourri of the, the Roman Catholic Pope. But you were talking about potpourri. Yes. A variety, a mixture. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 no, huge mixer, yeah, no, that's all true. So, what, um, what do you see as the most, uh, from your own experience now, because you actually said you've had boots on the ground there, what have you seen that has, that you think would be the most influential element that makes those, those areas so volatile and so, you know, prone to violence? What, what did you observe? Um, well, funnily enough, the other thing, um, the kindness of strangers, the decency of ordinary um, Arabs and Jews and all of that, trying to do, um, live their lives as quietly as possible. But, the, but there, is, there is something about the, um, the power of religion to, to define you and to define the other, which is difficult. Uh, and uh, and it, it, it's... It's very troubling. I was I did the second intimada, which for the Observer before I joined the BBC um, in two thousand, something like this, and um, I saw the um, these young men or youths, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, being throwing rocks at the Israeli Defence Force, and to protect themselves, the Israeli Defence Force was shooting because if you hit a rock hits you uh, in your head you can it could kill you but at the same time they had massive more firepower and they were shooting rubber bullets and the rubber bullets some of which would um would smash into people's faces and i saw in one afternoon in nablus four or five um palestinian youths die 
um, and it was grim. And you saw car bombs um, planted by the um, um, planted by the Palestinians, and there was one or there was one particular bomb where there was this Palestinian man, young man, who was half Palestinian, half Russian, so he was very pale, very blonde, and therefore he could. Um, he was allowed to go through security because he looked like a, uh, a, a blonde um, Israeli guy. And he got to a, um, he got to, um, into a bar and there was, uh, he hit the trigger and blew up 20 people. One of whom um, was a very, very beautiful uh, young Israeli woman whose mother was, the, um, was a police officer for the Israeli police in Jerusalem, and she was head of a lost, um, a lost uh, missing persons unit. So, when in particular, when kids, adolescents, ran away from home, this lady, who was a lovely and decent human being, would go and try and find um, them. She was good at it. And then her daughter gets blown up. So, uh, and the sense I went to the house, and they were, uh, were lovely people, and. Uh, very committed to a two-state solution, to peace with the Palestinians, to an end of the stupid war. And her daughter's blown up. And, and they didn't change their views, uh, but, but there was a, um, there was, you know, you, you come away from that just feeling hopeless for the human condition, really, because I'd seen these young chaps being killed by the higher firepower of the Israeli Defence Force. And you think that's not that's bad, and then then the, there's the occasional bomb attack um, and this awful wretched loss of life to a lovely and beautiful family, and uh, it it makes you weep. And one sees the same. Now, I, I understand that the Iraq War, for example, was a, was a grave mistake, but also I'd seen what Saddam did to the Kurds in '91. And I'd also I'd been to Halabja. Saddam was no angel. So there's all sorts of difficult places. I do don't like uh, Donald Trump called me thick uh, when I interviewed him about um, um, his dodgy Russian-born um, gangster friend Felix Sater. I asked him, Mr. Trump, why didn't you say to your friend Felix Sater, you're connected with the mafia, you're fired. And Trump got up and left. This too is up there on YouTube. There's a film I did for Panorama called Trump, the Kremlin Candidate, question mark. These days, I think we can take the question mark away because Mr. Putin has said, no, I, was, I wanted him to win. Um, and there is something about civility which is important. And I'm just talking specifically, Trump calling you thick, to be rude to people it, it, it's, you're on the way to demonizing them and you're on the way to, um, it's, a, it's a journey, but you can end up killing somebody you're very rude about because they're not really human, are they? And so actually in democracies, I know it sounds silly, but I think we should try to be polite to people. We should try to, um, um, as, as hard as we can, to be uh, polite and civil and thoughtful and thinking about the other side of the argument. And so I don't like what Mr. Trump has done, which is to corrode and erode 
um, civility in discourse, um, and and we should retain that. And I, and I kind of, um, and that's a simple thing that you see. But, you know, hey, you, um, I'm not saying that people in the Middle East are not, you know, there's tremendous decency, tremendous courage, tremendous, um, there are some fine people, but they're locked in a very difficult situation. Um, that's true. Would you say that the situation that they're locked in, because I agree with you completely, and I'm, I would even go so far as to say from within my own experience that it's probably the majority of people there are probably perfectly fine, decent people who don't want conflict and don't want violence. Would you say from your travels and experience and knowledge that this is a, a religiously based conflict that we're seeing you know, when you look at the, the warfare that goes on between Iran and Iraq or Palestine and, and Israel, or is it political, territorial, or is it just such a jumbled mix of all of these things that you really can't tell? There's, um, huh, you've got gold and blood and soil, and all three, and gold. Um, all of those things are going on at the same time. Religion is still, um, so in Britain, um, fewer and fewer, we're a post-Christian drinking society. Um, it's a, a way, that's a good description of London. You know, you look at the pubs uh, in Soho on Friday night, they are packed out. You look at the churches, they are not so full. So, um, but nevertheless, um, um, the, you know, people like church bells. A friend of mine said, um, in a packed church, I'm an atheist. In an empty church, sometimes I'm touched by the presence of God. And the, um, that has a resonance with me. I was brought up a Catholic, and when the, when the Pope's a Nazi, I'm not a Catholic, and uh, the current guy, he's okay. Uh, so I kind of, um, I like that. Who's a very funny actor? Jason, um, um, who's a good, was in the Church of Scientology, is left. Oh, Jason Lee, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, smashing guy. But I said, I, I was, uh, I was, uh, I said to him, I'm a lapsed Catholic. I said, oh, yes. No, that's, that's screamingly obvious, John. Uh, he was, uh, he was straight in there. Very funny. But, um, um, but being a Catholic uh, as a schoolboy in the 70s in England wasn't a problem. It was never a, um, it, it, it didn't define who I was in the slightest. Um, now, uh, for my father, it w was a Catholic. He was, uh, being a Catholic was difficult. He had a, a much harder time getting into a good school. He left school at 14. There was some prejudice. Um, still to that day in Liverpool, when he was, where he, the town, City brought up on because he was a Catholic and not a Protestant. That's true. So this changed in the Middle East. If your um, your life chances, if you happen to be a Jew as opposed to um, uh, uh, an Arab who follows Islam um, in Israel, your life chances are really quite different. Um, equally, if you're um, Sunni or Shia in Iraq these days. The Sunni used to be top dog under Saddam, now the Shia are top dog. Um, ISIS, uh, an extreme violent form of, of Sunni Islam, um, we all saw the horrors there. 
But we've also seen a recoiling from that. So a little bit of optimism. So what people say is that um, I actually met the mayor of Palermo in Sicily. He said that before Islamic State was going, he, he met some um, um, immigrants who, who were, uh, ended up in Palermo in Sicily. But after Islamic State risen up, there was a feeling of we've got to watch it. Um, he, he was uh, suggesting that people that um, the um, Muslim immigrants in Palermo were now worried about this, uh, the impact upon their community of this horrible tiny number of people doing what they're doing in, in Raqqa, etc., etc., and their behaviour, their they were open. They saw themselves as other other people saw them, and they were anxious that their community. Um, it was clear their community was different than the the image um, projected by Islamic State, and I think and I think that is uh, that is true. Uh, Twenty sixteen was the year in which um, Britain voted for Brexit, and uh, the United States elected Donald Trump. It feels as though the the, the times have changed. The other thing is it feels as though um, the um, the malice of, of the Kremlin is more obvious to the world. And so um, from my own personal experience, I, you, you know, you've got to ask me, you know, what's worse, um, Islamic State so-called or, um, or what the Kremlin's been up to? And I would, um, and I covered all, all of the reported on, all of the terrorist acts in Britain last year, um, five of them, four in London, one in Manchester, and I would say Russia, um, the power of the Kremlin to, to the, um, um, uh, Vladimir Putin has used his. Um, the power and money uh, that the Kremlin can control through the Russian oligarchs to further his ends is a more frightening attack upon the way we do things and our way of life than Islamic State. Full stop. Okay. Okay. So let me ask you this, and then maybe we'll uh, we'll move toward wrapping up here because we're we were touching on huge subjects that we could spend hours talking about. I wanted to ask, again, just because, um, you know, again, you've had boots on the ground in so many places. You've been to Russia, you've been to the Middle East, you've been to all these places. Um, what do you, do you, does it frustrate you ever at misconceptions people have about those places, either from bad media reporting or prejudicial, you know, rumors and, and, and things people say or, or prejudicial ideas they have? What? What do you, what's your been, been your experience with that? Hmm. Well, you kind of, hey, listen, I mean, let's talk about Russia for a second. I did a film called Taking on Putin, which is about the Russian opposition, uh, which again, it's up there on YouTube um, and you can watch it. And um, I interviewed, well, I, I have interviewed Boris Nemtsov, but he was shot dead a hundred meters from the Kremlin. Uh, he was a big a critic of uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, I've written a novel about Russia called Cold, and I dedicate it to three people, Anna Politovskaya, Natasha Esmerova, and Boris Nemtsov. All three were critical of Putin, and all three were shot dead. Um, 
and their killers or the people who ordered the hit have still to be found. I also, um, for this film, I interviewed uh, Alexei Navalny. He's been, um, he threw green dye on him on the green dye, inside the green dye, with some nasty chemical nerve agent thing that almost cost him the sight of an eye. Um, his supporters, one of whom is beaten um, to a pulp by three men who never spoke a word to him. This suggests special forces. If they're yob, if you know, fuck you, etc. Silence. That's a, a state-sponsored attack. Another guy uh, hit over the head by an iron bar. Another Navalny, um, essentially his chief of staff. Another guy who wore a Vladimir Putin mask um, um, to demos. And he was a, um, a street cleaner, snow sweeper. Uh, he goes to work at six o'clock in the morning and one guy tases him. And then he's on the ground with the electric shock and then he's stabbed twice. So shot, stabbed, poisoned, clubbed, beaten over the head. This is what happens to Putin's opposition. So when people say to me, oh, you're overdoing it um, about what Russia's like, um, we went to the World Cup and the Russians were lovely. Yes, the Russians are lovely. Yes, you could have had a lovely World Cup in, in Russia, but it's not a democracy. If you wear a Theresa May mask in London, nothing will happen to you. If you wear a Donald Trump uh, mask in the States, nothing will happen to you. Um, there'll be uh, hundreds of them. You wear a Vladimir Putin mask, you'll get tasered in, in Russia, you'll get tasered and stabbed. So, so you know, that's true. Um, and, and I'm scared uh, by it. Now, most of the time, most people in most countries are lovely. That's true. That's a fact. But that's not my job. My job is, um, journalism is kind of like the, um, the white blood cells in the body that we go to where the, the shit is, uh, you know, and we create pus. That's what we do. We, we say, hey, look at this. This is, you've got a problem here. And like the sun is shining, terrific. I didn't, Chris, I'm afraid to say I didn't report on the Royal Wedding. Why not? Well, because, like, it's not a story. It's a nice party. Lots of horses. It was lovely. You know, the horses were great. The preacher went, who went on for too long, he was great too. The, uh, uh, Meghan and Harry, they look lovely. They're very much in love. It's not a story. It's not what we do. You know? So, um, so I, I, I do feel that journalism has come under um, fire. Uh, too much. I think its um, its economic foundations have been uh, um, uh, effectively uh, torn away by the internet. Um, so the um, so newspapers, uh, local newspapers, are closing uh, across the Western world, and that's a shame and that's a problem. But I I still um, feel proud uh, to call myself a journalist. Um, and what I like is every now and then the BBC tries to make me redundant and they've tried it nine times and they've, they've given up for the moment. And whenever they do, I say, I'm, I'm seriously thinking about doing public relations for the church. As <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, I have certainly been critical of quote unquote mainstream media in terms of the depth of reporting that occurs from time that we see on cable news networks. But I have never thought, and I think I might not have expressed myself well, that 
you know, I admire the dedication and the work that people like you do when you do boots on the ground reporting in dangerous places and you go to find what the in-depth stories are. I feel that sometimes, you know, you guys are not well served by the, you know, the, the cable news model and, and conglomerates that have sort of taken over mainstream media. But I think that hardcore journalism and investigative journalism is still alive in, in places uh, as personified by a lot of stuff that you, do, you have done. You know, so I... Well, yeah, there is a, there's a club of us and, uh, and it's a laugh. And um, we're all slightly weird uh, and all of that, but it's, uh, uh, there, there's a, uh, the motto I think comes from the, the, foreign, cor the foreign Correspondence Club in Phnom Penh. Um, all the women have a past, all the men have no future. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> awesome, man. Awesome. Well, is there anything else you think, um, you know, in terms of current work you're doing or work you've done that, that uh, you want to preview or, or talk about at all before we wrap up here? Hmm. A difficult question. I've written a, um, uh, every now and then, um, I wrestle with um, um, the difficulties of, of saying you hear stuff and you think it's true, but you can't actually put it to air. So I've written a couple of, um, of books, um, novels, um, which are available on Amazon, Cold, which is about Russia, and then Road, um, which is about um, Syria. And um, they're my attempt to, um, to give a flavor of it. The second book, uh, Road, um, it, opens, it opens with something which could, could be um, the Scientology um, estates in um, New Mexico um, and uh, well when I say it could be it's based on that so but I, I kind of veer away and I get into um, ISIS and all of that stuff and I and I, I, I saw anyway one day I'm gonna write a, uh, a good novel uh, about something like the church because because um, I think I think a couple of you in the States might even read it. <laughs> I am sure that people will be very interested. Yeah, no, but, but, uh, but also, um, um, uh, you, what's fascinating, the, the other book, which is, um, I, so that's called, one's called Cole, one's called Road. There are a series on Amazon. My other novel is called Elephant Moon. And that's simply about the war in Burma in 1943. And uh, that was a dark time, but nevertheless, there's some wonderful moments, not only of uh, fascinating animal intelligence and all that, but also something else too, um, the courage and decency of humanity. And I haven't given up on that. Um, I really, uh, we're better than, it, it feels dark at the moment. It feels like we're returning to the 30s and in some ways we are. But nevertheless, um, let's, um, Fingers crossed, we'll get out of this and we'll get to a, a happier, sunnier place. Excellent. Without the Church of Scientology. Hales exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, man. All right. Thank you very much for your time, John. I really appreciate it. Uh, folks, we're going to wrap up here. Uh, any questions, comments, feedback, leave them in the uh, comments section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I always appreciate your guys' viewership. And if you appreciate what I'm doing here, go ahead and uh, give me a like, give me a subscribe, and uh, check me out on Patreon to help support this show. Thanks again. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.